It's the early 1930s in Mississippi, and a young guitar player wants, more than anything, to become a great blues musician. One evening, he grabs his guitar and goes down to the crossroads in Clarksdale, where Highway 61 crosses Highway 49. Shortly after he arrives, he is met by the devil. The devil picks up the guitar, tunes it, plays a couple songs, and hands it back to the young man. The man is surprised to find he now has complete mastery of the instrument. A minute ago, he's just a regular guy who wanted to play the guitar. Now he is a master blues musician. But this new skill comes with a hefty price tag. In exchange for musical mastery, he has to sell his soul to the devil. This is the legend of the blues musician Robert Johnson. But this story didn't start with him. Selling your soul to the devil in exchange for your deepest desire is a common theme in many Western stories. The origins of this theme can be traced back to the German legend of Faust. This legend has been around since at least the 1500s, but the most well-known version today is an epic poem written by German poet Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, who completed his version of the story in the early 1800s. Faust is probably the most important literary achievement in the German literary canon, but also in the European canon and in world literature in general, because Faust is essentially um, the myth of modernity. I'm John Hamilton. I'm professor of comparative literature in German at Harvard. Faust, the main character, is constantly striving beyond his human limitations. What he wants from the devil is knowledge and power. He believes he will finally be satisfied if he can obtain these things and put a stop to his striving. Faust's limitless striving seems to tell us something very profound about human limitation, because it's limitation at the very beginning that instigates limitless striving. If he were ever perfectly satisfied, if he overcame all limitation, he would no longer be limited and he would no longer be human. Part of the reason this text continues to resonate with audiences through the centuries is that everyone can relate to this feeling of striving against our own human limitations. So to be human is to be limited, and Faust brings out something that is quintessentially human about all of us, that we are defined by a limitless limitation that keeps us moving and striving and going further. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor John Hamilton to discuss Goethe's Faust. Goethe was born in Frankfurt, Germany in 1749. He studied law at Leipzig University, but his real passion was poetry. After he completed his studies, Goethe met German philosopher and poet Johann Gottfried Herder. They became close friends and inspirations to each other. Herder introduced Goethe to Shakespeare's works, which had a huge influence on young Goethe. So as a young man, Goethe had the opportunity to publish with Herder and started to make a name for himself among the younger generation of poets. Um, manuscripts of his poems would be circulated among this close-knit group of friends. And then he wrote this novella, The Sorrows of Young Werther, and almost instantaneously it became a major bestseller, and not only in the German states, but also in France and in England. And it sparked 
um, a, a wave of fanaticism uh, where young men dressed like Verta, um, they wore the same clothing. And also, um, at least according to reports, uh, many young men took their lives, just like Verta did. Uh, Verta commits suicide over um, a failed um, love interest. And so Goethe almost overnight became incredibly well-known, very famous. When Napoleon um, uh, was victorious at the Battle of Jena, um, he was invited to meet the elector of, um, of Weimar. And he said, no, 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 I want to meet the author of Werther. I mean, Goethe trumped everyone in terms of popularity and fame. The success of this novella made Goethe so popular, he caught the attention of the young Duke of Weimar in Germany, who offered Goethe a secretarial position in the court. He held this position for the rest of his life. So he would have sort of secretarial tasks, or he would have to deal with certain affairs of state, um, all the while creating uh, great works of literature, tragedies, um, novels, um, lots of poetry, all while, um, you know, basically having this secretarial career, more or less. Although Goethe wrote many stories, Faust became his most well-known work and occupied his life almost entirely. When Goethe first heard the story of Faust, it had already been around for roughly 200 years. He was six years old when he first saw a puppet show production of the Faust story in his hometown in Frankfurt. Um, in his autobiography, he, he discusses how he became obsessed with the plot, even at the age of six, and it would occupy the entirety of his very long life um, just after he becomes basically world famous, publishing his first novella, The Sorrows of Young Werther, in 1774, he immediately begins working on um, the Faust story. He's 26 years old he, when he publishes the first fragmentary version of the tragedy, and then continues working on it year after year, decade after decade, in 1790, he publishes a longer fragment of the tragedy. Then in 1808, he publishes the first part, and he only completes the poem, he completes part two, at the age of 82 years old, just a couple of months before he passes away in 1832. So from the age of six to the age of 82, he has persistently worked on this poem. So if Goethe is the greatest German poet, Faust is his life work in every single sense of the term. You mentioned that he saw the Faust story in a puppet show at age six. Where did the original story of the Faust myth come from? So there was a Faust um, legend that grew up around an historical figure, uh, Johann or Georg Faust, who was actually mentioned in Martin Luther's letters. He was reputed to have uh, performed black magic. Um, the legend was that he sold his soul to the devil for infinite knowledge and power. Um, and soon after this historical Faust passed away, there was a lot of sort of hearsay and legend being accumulated with various stories, usually cautionary tales, um, that were all collected in what we call the chapbook. This was um, a small booklet 
that essentially collected all of the various legends that were ascribed to the life of this uh, Dr. Faustus. And it's a chapbook that is translated um, immediately into English, and that's what Christopher Marlowe picked up in London. In the late 16th century, English playwright Christopher Marlowe adapted these chapbook tales into a play called The Tragical History of the Life and Death of Dr. Faustus. It's Marlowe's play that has an incredible success across Europe, where traveling troops of actors would perform this piece in all of the major capitals of the continent. Um, and then, of course, for those who cannot afford to have a troupe of actors um, performing in your town, um, there were puppet shows. And so the puppet show became a very common uh, feature in, um, again, these cities across Germany. And that's precisely what uh, the six-year-old Goethe saw in Frankfurt. Marlowe's version was very popular. Although it inspired various other tellings of the tale, this version was the one that continued to be read and performed. That all changed when Goethe decided to write his version of the tale. In Goethe's telling in, in Faust Part 1, what, what is the basic plot? What, what is the story? Well, the plot is what it always had been. Uh, Faust is a scholar. Um, he's someone who has learned everything. He has read every book. He has entirely absorbed all the information he could possibly absorb. But the information is just information. Um, it doesn't come with knowledge. He wants wisdom. And in order to achieve that, he makes a pact with the devil who promises him something like knowledge and power. Um, the idea is that information for Faust becomes something like a two-dimensional phenomenon. It's, it's all surface. There's no depth, right? It's just a lateral accumulation of information. You float across the surface, but you can never get what's beneath it. For Faust, information was just an unsatisfying pile of facts. He longed for something deeper. He craved knowledge. Knowledge begins when you start to connect what cannot be immediately perceived. When you get, get to the negative core that lies un, um, beneath the surface phenomenon. And only then can the information, these little specks of factoids, start to be uh, connected into a kind of narrative. Um, in German, as in English, we make a distinction between counting, in German, zählen, um, and recounting, or erzählen. So the idea is to take the counting and turn it into a narrative recounting where what you see is connected to what you don't see what is no longer here, what is not yet here, what is invisible, what is hidden, all of that comes together to create a certain kind of depth that we call knowledge, a knowledge that transcends the immediate positive appearance of things. This striving for knowledge, for depth, is precisely what drives Faust. He wants to know everything. He wants to be there when the world is created. He wants to see what no one else can see. And he wants to live in these negative depths of the no longer and the not yet. That's, that's timelessness for Faust. Otherwise, he's condemned to the mere present where everything is there, but nothing means anything. In other words, Faust wants to escape the immediate present and live in eternal knowledge. He is up against the limits of humanity. It is impossible to exist in this space, but that's what keeps Faust striving. 
We are first introduced to this tension in the very first scene of the story. It begins with Faust, the dissatisfied scholar, sitting in his study. And it's just beautifully uh, clever how Goethe sets it up. The scene is set up in a high vaulted, narrow Gothic study, right? So you have the high vaulted, the, the transcendence, the verticality, the striving upwards towards the heavens, but it's still a narrow study. So it's, it's this tension between what is high vaulted and narrow. And Faust is stuck in between these two axes, right? Between the verticality of striving and the horizontality of, um, of, of ennui, of boredom, of melancholy. Um, and he laments, it's a monologue. And the monologue is actually quite long. So we in the audience can feel the claustrophobia of this study, right? Because all we hear is Faust just going on and on of how he studied philosophy and jurisprudence and medicine, and unfortunately also theology. And what does he come up with, right? He's just the same old fool that he always was. He's, he's completely um, reached his limit. There's nothing more he can read. There's nothing more he can learn. And he feels that he knows absolutely nothing. And so he turns to magic. And magic is going to give him uh, the opportunity maybe to tap into those sources, those hidden sources of power and knowledge that he yearns for. Faust takes out an old spell book and manages to summon an earth spirit. But when the spirit appears, it quickly dismisses Faust and humiliates him. It is annoyed with Faust for summoning it and does not provide him the knowledge he seeks. And the failure is so, um, so devastating to Faust that he contemplates taking his life. And he's just about to reach for the vial that he sees uh, glimmering on his shelf. And as he brings the glass to his lips, the Easter bells resound in the town. And the Easter chorus saves him from this dreadful final step. Um, and he's saved for the moment from his um, path towards self-destruction. And the next morning on Easter Sunday, his um, assistant, Wagner, uh, persuades him to just go out into the countryside, go through the city gates, enjoy life. It's Easter Sunday, have a beer, talk with the peasants. And it's there that this black poodle uh, starts to uh, trail them. Um, and Wagner says, you know, it's just a stray dog. But Faust almost thinks he sees a little um, trail of fire coming from the dog's tail. The dog continues to follow them for the rest of their walk. When Faust gets back to his study, he is feeling inspired by the Easter festivities and decides to translate the Greek New Testament into German. Meanwhile, the black poodle is howling, um, barking up a storm, and he tries to throw something at the dog to get it out of his way. The dog goes behind the oven, and in a cloud of smoke, this traveling scholar appears, and it's Mephistopheles, an apparition that appears in his study, and that's when they start to exchange um, words that lead directly to the signing of the wager. Mephistopheles, or Mephisto, is a common character in German folklore. He is usually a demon, and in this story, he is the devil himself. 
And I should point out that Goethe makes a very important modification here. Um, in Christopher Marlowe and in most of the Faust accounts before Goethe, um, it's always a pact. And a pact has set limits, right? Usually it goes something like, I'll give you whatever you want, I the devil, um, and in exchange, after 24 years, you give me your soul. So an even contract, right? Very clear terms. You get whatever you want for 24 years, and then you give me your soul. But Goethe doesn't make it a pact. He makes it a wager. And a wager is completely different. Uh, Faust, in Goethe's version, says, for as long as I continue to strive, I will keep my soul. If ever I say, stay a while, because this is really beautiful, if I ever stop and contemplate the beauty and the pure adequacy of things, then you could have my soul. And Faust knows that it's a bet he can't lose because Faust knows he'll never stop striving. Nothing is ever good enough. Nothing is ever perfect enough for him to say to himself, Verweile doch, stay a while, du bist so schön, you are so beautiful. And so he readily signs this wager, knowing full well that he'll live a very long life and will never, ever say those words. Faust is a clever character. For him, this wager is a win-win. If he never finds satisfaction, his soul is his. But if he does in fact lose his soul to the devil, it will mean he has achieved perfect satisfaction, which is what he was after all along. Faust signs the wager in blood. After Faust signs the wager, um, Mephisto says, right, let's find you a girlfriend. But before they can find Faust a girlfriend, they need to make him appear younger. Faust is in his 60s, and at this point, he looks it. Mephistopheles takes him to a witch, but Faust is a little hesitant to use magic to look younger. He doesn't really care for this sort of thing. Um, and he says, Mephisto, do I have to go through this silly magic stuff? And, you know, Mephisto very cheekily says, well, there's other ways for you to look younger. You could eat better and exercise. And Faust says, OK, let's go for the magic pill instead. They leave the witch's house and head into town looking for a girlfriend for Faust. The first person Faust sees is a 14-year-old girl named Gretchen, who's walking home from church. And the witch has made it so that the first girl Faust sees, he falls irredeemably in love with. So, of course, he says, that's the girl. I need her. Mephisto is very nervous about that. He says, can we find somebody else? I mean, she just came back from church. She just confessed all her sins. Um, there's plenty of girls out here. Uh, but Faust says, no, either you get her for me or the deal is off. And so this begins what we call the Gretchen tragedy. Faust um, seduces Gretchen. Um, he kills her brother who spies on her. He accidentally kills her mother. So Gretchen's life is completely overturned by Faust's intervention, not to mention the fact that, of course, she's only 14 years old. Um, she's pregnant. She possibly drowns her baby. Uh, she is locked up in a prison. She, like Ophelia, has gone insane. Faust tries to save her. Faust visits her prison, uh, but she won't leave. She says, this is where I belong. I deserve to die. I'm a sinner. And she passes away in prison. And as Faust is leaving on horseback with Mephisto, he hears a voice in heaven 
proclaiming that Gretchen is saved. This is the end of part one. Having just experienced such a painful tragedy, Faust is overcome with sorrow and needs to be cleansed of his suffering. Part two begins with Faust asleep outside in a pleasant landscape. Spirits hover over him, singing songs to remove his pain and guilt. What distinguishes part two from part one is that part one is very closed in on itself, right? Faust's study, this small episode in a small town having to do with Gretchen. But part two opens up into the large world, right? Um, he needs to break out into this larger realm of experience. And that's essentially what part two is all about. And he moves through this. He goes through the emperor's court. He summons the spirit of Helena of, of, of Troy, Helen of Troy. Uh, he marries her, but that's short-lived because uh, she has to return to the past from which she came. But he strives. He goes further and further. Um, he wins the war for the emperor. And when the emperor wants to pay him back, um, he says, just give me that little strip of beach front uh, on your realm. And the emperor laughs at him. What are you going to do with this tiny little strip of sand? On the sand, Faust builds these giant machines that drain the sea to reveal more land. He then builds a big city on that land. As the city expands, he has to clear more land. As he expands his territory, he runs into an older couple who farm the land Faust wants to build on. So he tells Mephisto to get rid of that old farming couple, uh, Philemon and Baucis, um, which he does by setting their farm on fire and killing the old couple. And when Faust learns that Mephisto, you know, sort of followed the, the, the instructions too murderously, uh, he's stricken by care. And care is something that has never really bothered Faust before. And Care appears as this gray sister personified, creeping into his palace, right? Care infiltrates his study and blinds him. Care blinds him. And Faust has never cared before because he never cared about anyone or anything. He just strove um, relentlessly. And now blinded, he, he totters out onto the open landscape and he senses the workmen working and he senses the great accomplishment of his new city. And he says, I'm gonna stay here a while. This is beautiful. And of course, with that, he loses the wager and he falls dead on the spot. But he's over a hundred years old at this point. Um, the angels arrive to take his soul and Mephisto has to battle with them and they have a tug of war over Faust's soul, but God wins out. The angels went out and Faust is transported into heaven because he has been um, enjoying the grace and the intercession of Gretchen, who acts as a certain Beatrice, who summons his soul to the highest heavens for this final beatific vision. Faust wins the wager in more ways than he anticipated. He finds satisfaction and his soul is saved. Throughout the story, he goes through a spiritual journey and he ends up striving not for knowledge, but for purpose and caring for others. For this reason, his soul ascends to heaven. And in a way, the ending of the tragedy is no ending at all. Rather, it opens onto the very long reception history of Faust, where this story goes on and on and on from one century to the next. Can you tell us about that 
reception history and that kind of creative reconfiguration of the story? Sure. I mean, uh, to begin, um, when uh, Goethe was quite old uh, in his in his 80s, um, he learned that a young poet named Gérard de Neval uh, translated Faust into French. And he received a copy and he confessed that for the first time, he's able to read his work with delight. The, the French translation by Neval is so beautiful and so vivid and full of, full of energy that he's absolutely delighted by this. And it's Neval's French translation that would serve as the libretto for Gounod's opera on Faust. And so Faust begins to have a very important operatic history in the 19th century building on the great achievement of Gounod. Um, and that would uh, trigger an entire French tradition that possibly culminates with Paul Valéry in the early 20th century with Mont Faust. Uh, meanwhile, in Germany, you have lots of um, retellings of the tale. Uh, Lenau's Faust uh, has the scholar become a devilish violinist, um, or the, the devil is a violinist who seduces Faust. Um, but it culminates certainly in the greatest uh, post-war novel, uh, namely Thomas Mann's Dr. Faustus, where the Faust figure is Adrian Leverkuhn, who is a composer, a modernist composer, who uh, essentially destroys tonality. And so Faust, as a composer, is going to allow Thomas Mann to reflect on the disaster of the Third Reich, of the fall of German culture, and on the untrustworthiness of German culture. Right? The book, the novel, is published in 1947. So the, the, the 20th century is now given this great gift of Thomas Mann's deeply reflective and deeply ironic account of the Faust legend that in turn will, um, will trigger um, an entire array of retellings. Now trying to grapple with the three main pillars of the legend, uh, Marlowe's um, Dr. Faustus, Goethe's Faust, and Thomas Mann's uh, Dr. Faustus. It's a myth with such power that it does feel kind of eternal in a way. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on why why do you think it's such an effective myth of modernity? Spengler, in his great um, and problematic book on uh, the decline of the West, um, says that we are living in a Faustian age. That 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 you know, the twentieth century, especially with its um, enthrallment to technology, uh, to convenience, to complacency, um, has left us in this constant striving without knowing what we're striving for, right? This restlessness, again, spurred by a deep sense of being cut off from something that's real, that we are living in Baudrillard's sense in a realm of, of simulacra, that everything is flat once again, that everything is somehow reduced to a screen, two-dimensionality, where we don't know what's going on beneath the surface. I mean, even when I use my laptop, I mean, it could do so many things and I could get so much information out of it, but I don't know what's going on. Unless I'm a computer programmer, I have no clue what's going on inside this computer. I don't see how these connections work. 
I don't understand how the algorithms do what they do. And I certainly don't have any clue of how I'm becoming the product of these consumerist uh, websites, that I become data points, that I become a target, that I'm being advertised as I use this technology. And so the Faustian age is because we sense, I think, that we're coming face to face with a very um, real sense of superficiality that bothers us as human beings. And Faust knew this, and we could read it and understand that there has to be something else beneath the surface. There has to be something else that we don't see. Um, and what we don't see could be the no longer, but it could also be the not yet. It could be this great dark moment that we call hope or we call the future, the darkness or the negativity that punctuates our present, the thing that we don't understand, the thing that disturbs us, the thing that makes us strive can actually get us past the present and past the immediacy of the moment. The power of the theme seems to be humanity refusing to acknowledge limits or to live within limits. But I'm, I'm curious about the limits that were seen in Goethe's age. How were they interpreting that restless striving that knowledge um, was somehow dangerous or the pursuit of it uh, unbounded? Uh, for Goethe, uh, writing um, at the end of the 18th century into the 19th century, um, he's living in an era that was very much um, impacted by the Enlightenment. And the Enlightenment, of course, uh, very suspicious of theology, very suspicious of the church and its dogma, but also suspicious of the aristocracy, of those in power who say they know better, they know how to fix things. It's a democratic age that Goethe inherits. It's an enlightened age, but an enlightened age of transparency, of knowing what's happening all the time, that's already quite, um, quite palpable in Goethe's day. And what it does for Goethe, it basically explains everything. And I like the word explain because explanatio, the, the planus in explanatio, planus is the word in Latin for flat. Explanations make everything flat. It lays it all out there for you to see. There's nothing beneath the surface. Here it is. Let me lay it out for you. Here's the plan. The plan is visible. Everything is explained. And when everything is explained, you start to become apathetic. You start to become indifferent. And you start to um, not work as hard because everything is already there. In the age of the internet, which I think bears many more analogies with the, with the age of Goethe's enlightenment than we might think about, um, you know, everything is basically available for us at any moment. If I need to know Goethe's birth date, well, I type it in to Google and I get it in a second or a split second. And because everything is already there and available, at least potentially in my laptop, I don't need to memorize things. And memory is precisely the storehouse of what is no longer present. And so we start to live in this eternal present where everything is there, everything is available, everything is accessible, there are no limits, and what are we left with? 
we're left with this incredible feeling of limitation that Faust, again, tries to break through, but breaks through in a way that doesn't ignore how incredibly violent and destructive and horrific that breaking through can be. It's not pure optimism, this breaking through. Um, there are um, moments in this tragedy that are absolutely terrifying because of this striving. And yet I think the poem still resonates with us today because I feel that we are facing the same uh, lethargy, the same boredom with everything transparent, everything accessible, everything laid flat before us. The closer we get to limitless knowledge and power, the less meaning those things start to have. While we may be able to escape certain technological and intellectual limitations, we won't ever be able to escape our human limitations. We will always be striving beyond what is in reach. But this, as Faust learned, is exactly what makes us human. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss, and our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of Lit Hub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on our website, writlarge.fm. There, you'll find transcripts, links to the books we discussed, and more information about today's guest. Thanks for listening. See you next time.